Hello, my friends, and welcome to the next episode of New Perspective. Today, our guest is Vicky Sherwood. Vicky now is currently working as medical writer, but what's most interesting to all of us that Vicky was on all sides of this academic game. She was PhD, then she was a postdoc, and then she got her own work group. So Wiki knows pretty well how things are working in academia and as well in industry. So let's jump right into it and hope you will enjoy it. Hello Wiki, thank you for coming. I must say your experience is very interesting. You was on both sides as academic, academic side, industry, but as well in academia you was as a PhD, you was postdoc and you was lecturer with your own work group. Mm-hmm. And lecturer, I must say it's okay. In Germany, I never saw position like lecturer and in UK and Ireland, it's really common. Right. So it's basically assistant professor. Um, you could then become senior lecturer, which would be like, yeah, you know, I'm trying to think because I'm trying to think it would go assistant associate and then full professor right okay Um, so it would be like assistant professor and then a senior lecturer would be an associate professor and then there would be the you know full professor but um i think they're changing that now because it's confusing you know calling it one thing one place and one thing another nobody really knows at what level you're at and how analogous that is to their position. So I think I've seen now, like the University of Nottingham, um, which is mm. one of the universities in the UK, they started changing to assistant and associate professor. They've changed the name from lecturer for senior lecturer. I think they're trying to, to align that a bit better because otherwise yeah. we don't know in different countries what people are doing, right? <laughs> it's confusing. Yeah, because for me, when I was looking during my after yeah, close to the end of my PhD, I was like lecturer. When I hear lecturer, it's like I'm at the university for a two hours, just some lecture and I'm going home. That's it. Yeah. But yeah. in reality, something different. Yeah, it makes it sound like a teaching position. And it, yeah. usually, it will have a teaching component to it, but it is, it's basically a PI. Yeah, so somebody who does research with teaching. Usually, although having said that, you do get teaching only lectureships as well, but they're more they're more rare. They're more rare. Most people have to do both research and teaching. And how this transition from postdoc to lecturer looks as a lecturer, you have already might have your own work group and then crazy stuff with grants, papers, funding going on. Yeah, and it yeah. must be pretty rough change. How was it for you? I found it a real, I just what you described, I found it a real hustle. You know, it was like suddenly I had a teaching load. I had students, PhD students. I had um, grants to write to get postdocs. I had, you know, it was everything, everything at once. And I don't oh. think postdoc prepares you enough. Because in the postdoc, you're still concentrating on your own research. And yes, you might be supervising people in the group, but you're not leading everything. And I don't think I had, certainly not in my last postdoc, I don't think I had the best uh, mentor 
in my supervisor. He um, he wasn't very well, to be fair. He had a, he had a breakdown. And so we were kind of in the lab fixing everything ourselves. And, and I didn't really have anybody to, to learn from directly about how to properly manage projects and people. We were just learning by ourselves in the lab. We were kind of left to it. So I think it depends on your supervisor and how much support you get from them from how well you will be prepared for that step. There's nothing formal. And this is a problem in academia. There's no formal management training or really any step, you know, you're just, you're expected to be good at science and therefore then be able to lead a team. And I don't think the two are always compatible necessarily. Some people are great at it, but then others are, are terrible. You know, you get, and then you, you hear these horror stories of people being supervised in such terrible ways. So I think there could be something to do there with aligning training a bit better. I think there should be standardized management training, actually, for PIs. Yeah, I totally agree. Also, I uh, spoke with also Russian fellow who kind of agreed that my experience was when I was starting. Now I'm getting that my PI, there was no plan for me. At this point, first three months, you should do this, you should do that. Not even some kind, yeah, there was nothing. (laughs) I think that is problem in academia in general. Also, many people in industry all saying cooperation with academia, we don't know what to expect. The way academics handle research, it's like, and there are no kind of strict deadlines, management, breaking down project into small goals and mm-hmm. pieces. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. And I think um, this is interesting because I've been writing about this recently, you know, this cultural transition between the two. And um, people have been reaching out saying that they not only have moved from academia to industry, but moving from industry back to into academia poses exactly those things you've just listed, you know, frustrations and shock um, and really needing getting used to the fact that there's no kind of accountability like things can just get dropped or they can be discussed for months and months and months, which really wouldn't happen in industry. You know, you would discuss it and then that week you would act and try and solve it. And I think it is a bit of a shock, isn't it, for people who who aren't used to working in that way. So that's interesting. Do you think then that that's a barrier um, between between collaborations between industry and academia, this this idea that the, the work process is just too incompatible to work in general i would agree uh, yeah a friend of mine was about to finish his postdoc about two months till the end of a contract there was just pi was came by kind of i know your contract will expire at I don't know, end of the year and it was for example october come over into my office we will yeah, discuss what you want to do next what your plans academia industry and so on he just did it by himself. Nobody kind of pushed him. Help me, help me. This guy, from what I see, he's such a great manager. He started at uh, that university about 20 years ago, and he already built biomedical center, one mm-hmm. of the biggest in Germany. And they wow. have best tech probably. The, he has, this is also another good point, he has very 
good money from industry. Okay, yeah. This is another reason. When, yeah, both friends of mine were working at him, they were working at, uh, yeah, in organic chemistry, total synthesis, both these drugs, when, uh, yeah, at the end, they should be uh, tested. But it was already planned. Maybe it will take three years, four years, but it was already planned. Like this postdoc, one year he must do this piece. This PhD, three, four years, this is his part. About postdoc, I wanted to ask. I was working as a PhD. I got this 50% salary of, it was kind of okay salary. And everything is paid. So medical insurance, social insurance. And I got pretty yeah, okay money to live by myself. It's, and how it looks, it looks like in uh, Ireland. Um, well, I, I did my PhD in the UK. Um, um, so I'm, I can't actually answer for Ireland because I've not worked in Ireland in the academic system. Uh, but I just imagine it's analogous. So in the UK, then, a PhD is viewed as a studentship or like a training, um, and you're given a stipend, which is part of the grant, um, but it's tax-free, so it's non-taxable. It's, it's not like working earnings. But some, sometimes it can be quite lucrative in a way that, you know, if you were working in a job, uh, by the time, you know, an entry-level job, so if you've come out of university and you've got a graduate-level job and you were taxed, it would be an analogous kind of wage, I think. Uh, when I did it, it was a very, very small stipend. But I, I saw more recently, you know, that it probably tripled in size the living wages of a PhD student for some, for some programs. Uh, there is, you know, it does vary. Um, and some students are, you know, self-funded. So I, I don't know where they're getting the money from there, but they, it must be so extortionate. Yeah. And then postdocs are funded by grants, so usually soft money from the central government or from other funding agencies like charities, etc. And they will be for a fixed amount of time that the, the PI will apply for the money and got money in. So maybe two or three years. Some of them, I have seen four-year postdocs, but that's probably about the best you're going to get. Um, you know, I've seen some as short as six months, which is just tiny, tiny contract. You can't do anything in six months, right? But it's usually like yeah. to fill in if somebody's left or gone on maternity leave or something like that and you've got a small pot of money left and um, you need somebody just for a short amount of time. So if, you, if you're going to be a postdoc in the UK, and I, I assume it's the same in Germany, you know, you're going to be on a short contract, you know, of a few years and then have to either apply for money or try and find something else. Um, and there are schemes available as well where you can apply for money for yourself as a postdoc, but you do need a sponsoring PI. So that, that looks good on a CV if you're going for academic positions because it shows you can get money in. You can write a grant and get money in yourself to pay for your own salary. And universities love that. So um, they're really the main options. Interestingly, I did a postdoc in Sweden. And the system is slightly different there. So in Sweden, I believe Denmark is the same. PhD student is employed and pays taxes and gets benefits, whereas postdocs aren't, and they get a stipend. So it seems to be reversed and switched. 
Interesting. Which I've never seen in, in, in countries outside of Scandinavia. So I don't know why they've got that system there. But it does suggest that there are different there are different structures depending on where you are in the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. In Germany it's kind of half half. Yeah, many postdocs are also on grants, but sometimes they kinda also, yeah, postdoc assistant professor, something like this. Right. Okay. And this is kind of, I don't know, it's better or worse in comparison to grants or stipends. Are they teaching? Are they teaching as well on those positions? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's it's like an adjunct then in in the in the US, right? An adjunct position, which is kind of a teaching a teaching position with maybe some research in the lab when you've got time. It can be very short contracts, which is not ideal. Yeah, usually in Germany, it's about 12-month contract. For PhDs, it can be different. My first contract was, okay, it was one year and two years. First, I think it was first for one year, and then I got extended for two years. Again, when I started to apply for positions, and I asked during this job fairs, Guy, uh, yeah, people from pharma, from industry, how they consider this PhD experience as a work experience. No, it was your research. It was this contract was just to, so you can do your research. Yeah, it, it's so confusing from as a PhD, uh, yeah, as a PhD students, you also uh, was probably uh, were supervising bachelor and master students as well mm-hmm. during your time and it's yeah. also so so time consuming absolutely very yeah that's interesting that point about do indus- does industry view any of this as as experience and i think it's I think it's harsh they're not they don't view it as real world experience as in you know private sector experience but you know there are transferable skills that I think people can concentrate on that can help them make that transition and certainly marketable skills as well that they can try and invest in so things like programming and and data analysis um, and project management I mean project management in in industry is different to project management of a research project, but you can try and use some of the analogous tools and ways of managing a project that would therefore make you more employable, I think, and you could sell in an interview on your CV. And so that's kind of what I do on my blog. I try and talk about these things, you know, to try and help people make themselves appear more more sellable, if you like, to, to industry. Because I do think, you know, there are a lot of skills that researchers, academic researchers have uh, that are really compatible with the workplace outside of academia. So things like, you know, being able to problem solve and not getting overwhelmed with stuff and being able to be resilient and keep going and work hard and work long hours if needed. These are all things that, you know, employers would love to have in their workforce. Um, So I think academics bring a lot. It's just... I think there's a there's a communication problem in people being able to sell their skills and explain what they've done properly, because I don't think universities are explaining that to people, and maybe it might not be intentional. It's just that universities don't know, you know, what employers want outside of the academic bubble. 
You know, the easiest way, yeah, from my view, universities shouldn't do really much in terms of yeah, explaining about industry, provide some support for these alumni groups. Yeah, when I was doing my PhD, we had every year or twice a year something like alumni meetings. When you're doing your PhD thesis, you basically knew everyone in the, at this institute. So getting friends, then he going into industry, then you're still connected, and then you're just inviting, I don't know, for Christmas some party, and in summer just from, for barbecue, and then it started. It's already kind of there, maybe more support yeah, from from, I don't know, presidents or something like this, faculties. One of my posts, I asked people who knew uh, yeah, at the university there is some sort of course introduction into industry or universities in some way informing students about opportunities in their future career. Only 20% answered that it was useful information. 66%, yeah, two-thirds, just nothing no course no yeah kind of courses no classes about it nothing in us you paying crazy money just for during this yeah study period kind of educating people and basically i'm giving some tool to someone and i'm not telling what you can do with this tool waste of time and energy to teach <laughs> yeah to teaching people such yeah advanced things in science and everything and then like take care see you i think this idea yeah i, I absolutely agree what hear what you're saying and this idea that students weren't interested you know i i find that i find that astonishing in a way i feel as if a lot of people go through academia they will eventually become a pi even though the statistics suggest they will not and yet they they still they're still driven by that that idea and that concept of becoming the PI mm. um, at the expense of exploring anything else. I, I I still there was a Nature paper out I think it was earlier last year that had asked this question and I think eighty percent of them or something maybe it wasn't quite eighty percent but a lot had still suggested it was far the majority that they wanted to become you know a career academic and be a PI when clearly the vast majority of them would end up leaving. So it's still there. And, and you know, I think people are just influenced by their environment. At the end of the day, they, they end up in, a, in an academic lab. They see their PI. They are the people that they're kind of looking up to. And everybody around them in the faculty, they all took that same career path. And it's just something to aspire to. And it's almost as if the outside world doesn't really exist. Now, I'm not saying that's for everyone because I have met people that have decided from day one that they wanted an industry career, but I think they're in the minority. And I don't understand really why that is still the case. 80%, it seems crazy. When you're in academia, you're thinking you're like scientists, you know facts, you are so cold-blooded and thoughts are clear, you're so super objective and the academia ended what was it less than five percent of all phds versus 80 percent one 
see themselves in academia? It's like, yeah, how how it can be possible? <laughs> Just yeah, as you said, I totally agree that being for so long in academia you just it's so hard not to lose this outsider's perspective i think it's a problem, yeah of not having a role model not having people learn you know yes you can invite alumni to come back and speak but if they only go twice a year and if people people don't want to engage in those events then they don't really yeah. see anything else yeah, it's yeah. a conundrum. This whole problem for me is a conundrum that I, I really don't know what the what the answer is. The academic side of, you know, people within academia not thinking a bit more broad picture, and then the industry side of them feeling as if they can't get the skill set that they want from people trained in academia. You know, trying to think about how to fix that problem is it's quite a complex one. When I was thinking also. Uh, about why PIs are so disengaged about future of these students, you probably got tons of things to do when mm. you were working as PI. Grants, papers, students, lectures, seminars, and mm. somehow you can you must take care of your student. Yeah, about future of your students. For you to survive as PI, it's secondary thing. Papers and grants, it's holy grail. I I would love to. I don't. Did you had an opportunity to get something like I don't know secretary or someone who can help you with grants writing and all this kind of routine stuff? No, no. And I think there's less and less of that. There used to be a lot more. But as universities cut back with with financial problems, I mean, I don't know how it is in Germany, but in the UK, the universities, after the economic crash in 2008, Mm -hmm. um, basically in England used a funding model where every single person would have to pay nine and a half thousand a year for their undergraduate degree. Um, And they got that through government loans, mostly in the most part, their parents couldn't afford it. And international students would pay even more. So anybody outside the EU would pay an international fee, and it was almost double. They make most of their money through tuition fees. And so what that means is that, you know, because they can't necessarily predict exactly how many students they're going to get every every year, um, that that can, can cause funding issues because the centralised money from the government was cut in a large part to each of the universities. So they became reliant on student numbers and basically getting bums on seats in lecture theatres and expanding their their teaching. And at the same moment, they tried to cut costs and they cut a lot of administrative costs and put a lot of the work onto the faculty, Um, which is very much, I think, a similar situation to what is going on in the US um, or has been going on in the US for longer. You know, it became, it's, it's, it's not an easy place to work unless you are you know, Nobel Prize winner with absolutely tons of international reputation and resources at your disposal, you don't get a lot of support, not in admin work. I don't see that getting any better. I see that potentially getting worse, especially now, you know, given the economic climate like face. Uh, And the fact that the universities aren't going to be getting the number of students in internationally because people don't want to travel, uh, at least for this year, that I know the international student numbers were down, you know, and and also there's a, there's a there's a more global thing 
going on, which is, you know, people are starting to evaluate, at least in the US, whether or not their education is worth it. So do you want to be paying hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially yeah. on doing a huge expansive education at a really expensive university when actually maybe you can learn what you need outside so you know through online tools and I think computer science is an interesting one because eventually will academia be the only place that people are trained and I, I actually suspect not you know you can learn a lot on your own and you could go and get a job in a software company and learn pretty fast. Um, and as long as you speak the languages and you can do the programming and the analysis, I think, why would you need a degree to support that? You probably wouldn't. So will academia always remain the preserve of where you train scientists? I, I don't know. And I think they'll have to think about how they're going to be competitive in that, in that marketplace going forward. Yeah, with computer science i would definitely agree because i have friend of mine in russia who was dropped out from school and now we are about same age and now he's working at international company in st petersburg in russia getting good money from other side this whole academic structure was built like thousand years ago when yeah. i don't know first universities in uk nothing pretty much changed kind of gradation yeah to be on the top of the uh, this pyramid pyramid you must be a professor it's the same over the years classes practice classes practice i i don't have an answer but something should be done in this regard as well how also industries, communi- uh, academia, kind of communicating with real world, world mm-hmm. outside. Because when I w- uh, was in my PhD, I got two s- really small industrial projects. It was like dissolving some stuff in different solvent results. Another one was also something analyzed, uh, some, I don't know, mixture of things. That's it. It was in general, everything combined was about you know, 16 hours of work. Many of vast majority of this time was like pumping this mixture through these analyzers. It was, I don't know, 20,000 euros we were paid. Wow. Yeah, because they needed that certified. So it must be done at some government supported facility, something like this. Yeah. which universities uh, are. In terms of long-standing this collaboration with industry, many big companies, I think, have kind of these crazy ideas. I don't know what future will look like in 20, 50 years. Talk with academics about it. Mm-hmm. We think, let's say, I don't know, pharma, for example, in 30 years, we will be, for example, Down syndrome. We will be targeting this DNA, this chromosome, everything. This is the way we see that. Let's do this project. Because when you're doing it in industry, it's a different story. Because you got to pull out your researchers from other projects. And it's, it's really expensive. But mm. if you're giving, I don't know, even 10 million for company like Pfizer, it's nothing. And in academia, 
I don't know for how many years you can support all your lab and all mm. your stuff. So also from that point of view, maybe not kind of short-term short term project because when I was starting in industry, it was really hard for me, especially in Germany when I was first four months, I was working 11 hours a day because I kind of didn't figure it out, this effective way of working, how to mm-hmm. schedule my day. But then I figured it out and I was kind of, we were working from uh, 7.30 a.m., till 4 p.m. and 3 p.m. I was done all (laughs) tasks were done I was just sitting checking email some just waiting when time will over so I can go home and this is also I think for academics it's they must figure out most of them how to work effectively checking I don't know emails grants chatting with friends you probably also got this uh kitchen at the university yeah in the idea institute where everybody kind of sitting drinking coffee chatting and <laughs> so, some people drinking too much and yeah chatting too much yeah yeah i agree i used to uh, i did um, a sabbatical in the states for six months and um i went to the lab and it was a howard hughes institute funded project they had loads and loads of money it was 40 people in the lab uh, they used to say when I got there, they used to say, "Gosh, we work from we work all day and we work till ten o'clock at night." And I was like, "Wow, you know, there's forty of them. They must be producing so much work, you know." And they were producing, you know, high-profile papers. But when I actually, you know, was there for after a few weeks, I realised that this full day incorporated turning up at ten in the morning and going to the gym and going for a big lunch as a group and chatting, and then the coffee breaks. And then, you know, talking in the, in the evening and maybe going for a pizza and getting some, you know. So it was a full day of every, their social life as well as, you know, the lab work. Yeah, that's true. Now in whole world, probably how employer uh, see good worker, you should be on the work, yeah, doing, not doing your work, you should be on your workplace mm. from, I don't know, eight to five mm-hmm. and if you want really be good you should be till i don't know seven or eight yeah. nobody <laughs> kind of shifting this perspective to actual performance how mm. much you got in this how much you done in this time this is also reason you yeah, mentioned sweden in scandinavia it, it is true i remember it correctly in sweden now it's sort of experiment they counting time you driving to your work as a working hours uh, yeah I, I that doesn't surprise me it wasn't when I was there but it doesn't surprise me my we lived there um we're in Malmo in the south and I was working at the university and um of Lund and my husband was working in Copenhagen and he got money from his company to drive across the bridge to work you know it was like it was something that was just done. And, you know, the working conditions in Scandinavia are amazing. Having said that, I would say, you know, they decided that they were going to finish work at four o'clock. They'd been in since, you know, eight. And that was their working day. It wouldn't matter what was going on. You know, the roof could be leaking. And I did find that people would be like, well, I'm just leaving. It's four o'clock. We'll sort it out eight o'clock tomorrow. So that I really did struggle with. Because sometimes, you know, especially with experiments. And I was doing, you know, 
biology based work so you know it didn't always fit in those hours a lot of us who were used to working late would stay but the vast majority of people wanted to be out the door between four and five that was an absolute must and I think that's the work of Scandinavia which is good I mean it's good in some respects right yeah there should be something in between like if I gotta finish it I will finish and then I'll go home because funny enough in Germany official officially also you're working from yeah let's say nine till five and working hours should be paid but it's never the case only probably for kind of low-paying jobs high profile because i have two examples in my wife's family uh, her aunt and her mm-hmm. husband even better example because he's working uh he's head of department he got pretty sick accidentally doctors was were saying for good recovery you must take a break about six months to recover fully he came back after three months because he was scared that someone will take over Mm. his Mm. job he's leaving i don't know half past six in the morning and coming about yeah 7 p.m or mm. yeah 6 p.m best case probably they're getting tons of money but at that cost half of your life you on the job and okay maybe his life he loves his job but they have such a great family with three kids and i would love to kind of exchange it this free mm. time <laughs> because yeah that's fun especially if you're ill and you feel like you can't you don't have time to recover there's something wrong there yeah because that's not again right. i have also uh i met one consultant consulting is also a crazy job mm-hmm. you're always uh, at the clients you're not home he told me that many consultants they refusing get uh, getting uh next step on this career ladder just because mm-hmm. it will be too much for them in terms of uh, kind of sacrificing the private life. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? I think corporate culture is really yeah. demanding more and more of our time because, you know, with the with the advent of smartphones, my, my husband's job, he, he runs operations here in Ireland and he goes out at six in the morning. He's back around seven at night because the operation runs, it's a 24-hour operation, yeah. you know, delivering... And it just seems that as the years go on, you know, he's he's not only working those hours, but now, you know, more and more things, people ringing all hours, texts coming in, this has broken down, that's happened. You know, it just seems to be on the job all the time, you know. It's crazy. Um, wow. Yeah, I don't know where it will end. And and yeah. yet, you know, that they then you have a contract that says, you know, you're allowed this many hours off, this many days off a year. And, um, you know, these are your working hours, which are totally irrelevant, the working hours. Right. But the days off, you have to absolutely keep to it. So it doesn't seem imbalanced, does it? There's, it, yeah, there's an true. You know, it's, it's all weighted in favour of the employer. I but, don't know. I heard, I heard at Netflix, they don't have these allotted hours anymore, these allotted days a year. Yes. They yeah. say that you can just, when you need a break, just say you need a break and you take it. And I don't know how that works for employers because I don't know employees because I don't know anybody who works at Netflix whether they actually take their holidays or not. Or 
you know, I heard story here from one company that they increased vacation yeah, days off for employees can take. And it was pretty substantial increase from 29 to 30 something, about one week. Mm-hmm. They saw actually that performance increases because in Germany, you kind of, <coughs> oh, I'm a bit sick, I'm going to a doctor. And he's mm-hmm. like, okay, three days off. I'm three days off, see you. Yeah. So it was unplanned. So someone can, must finish your job. So it was a bit, bit of kind of chaotic in this term. When they increased, people kind of felt at first probably more appreciated and they mm-hmm. got more this time to spend yeah, outside of a work. As far as I believe, they claim that, yeah, they got some increase in uh, performance. Yes, you can increase productivity by giving people, you know, more, more time to recuperate, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And how things is, uh, how you decided to go as a freelancer? You were saying how, yeah, why did I decide to go as a freelancer? And then I missed yeah, the next. It should be like pretty much cold shower. <laughs> it's again such a switch from yeah one environment into a completely different environment where you can you must network and reach out you know it wasn't it wasn't a choice that i made as a as a uh-huh. career choice specifically it was because i was working in london and my husband was working in london and then he got this job over in dublin with the same company, but they needed help over here. So we've come over to Dublin and it just so happens that the, the work that I do in medical communications can easily be freelance if you, if you want it to be, because I was doing a lot of remote working long before the pandemic and the lockdown. I was doing remote working anyway. Um, so I didn't have to go into London every single day because we were living outside. It's just how medical communications is. It's a very flexible work environment. And lots of people can work remotely. Either they choose to do it because the the money can be better, although there's the risk of not getting something, you know, uh, and having a gap. Or they they do it for a few months or a couple of years just to fill in while life circumstances change and then they'll go back and get a job. So it's very flexible from that respect. So I decided when we came here, um, I could look, you know, for other medical writing job here in Ireland or I could just freelance for a bit and build a network and get to know people. I already have contacts in London. I've been able to secure a little bit of freelancing work anyway. Um, so I figured out I'd do that. It wasn't necessarily a conscious decision to do that, but rather something that I just needed to do or, you know, it was to fit in for, for the time being. And we'll see how it goes because at the minute I'm really enjoying it. I'm getting different types of projects. I can pick and choose the projects. It's very flexible. Uh, the pay is pretty good. So, yeah, we'll see. I'll see where it goes. But, you know, I, I'm the sort of person that quite enjoys working in a team. It, that's the one thing about freelancing. It's a little bit too... I talk to the team that I'm working with on the projects that I'm working with at any particular time, but it's not the same as being in, embedded in a, te- yeah. in a work team. I don't think it will... I'm the sort of personality it would fit forever. For now, for what I need right now, it's perfect. Yeah, now it's pretty tough with jobs. Mm. With, with your background I think 
it's really good choice. I don't think I could do it forever. I think I can do it for a while. But I just feel like I just need, I need, I'm the sort of person that likes to bounce ideas off people. And that's what I miss when I'm, when I'm doing this freelancing work. Yes. I love also kind of this bouncing, uh, bounce ideas. Uh, but again, when, yeah, sometimes you get in, it's yeah, pretty intense, this discussion. And for some reason, vast majority of people, when you're getting a bit kind of, kind of more intense in this discussion, they consider this conflict as a bad thing. I don't know why. Yeah, you mean if, you, if, if, if you're discussing something and you disagree on something? Yes, yeah, and, and it gets kind of, you know, like... I guess it, I guess it depends what, you, what you're discussing, right? But sometimes, you know, you think this would be a good way to do something and someone comes up with a completely left-field suggestion you think, wow, yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. Uh, and initially you might think, oh, that'll never work. But then maybe a couple of days later, it's, you, you've thought over it in your brain and you think, actually... There are aspects of that that could work and you know and then you can improve you know what you're doing whereas I think when you're freelancing and you don't have that you only have your own ideas and you only got one yeah. one doing something so you can't incorporate loads of other ideas you can if you're very strategic and you're networked and you're talking to loads of people and you're going to meetups and, and chatting ideas and and but it's not the same it's not the same as being you know having people around you or just that you know, click away on, on Skype to, to ask somebody something. I like that. I like that ability to have somebody else say, no, I think you should do it this way or have you thought about this? That I do miss that because I feel like that adds something to, to my ability to, to get better at stuff. Is a freelancer, you're pretty much responsible for yourself. But when you're employed, it's already what you have to do and when you must do things, it's already planned. Did you thought about it? Yeah, I don't think freelancing gives you the, um, the it gives you flexibility, but you still absolutely have the deadlines. You know, they, they're your clients, yeah, right? They, anything, you don't have a, a, other team members that you can suddenly rely upon if, if something's, taking longer than you expected or that you agreed with your, your original scope of the project. So you can be more discerning about how many projects you take on and when, but still, you know, your time is not your own. The, the only way I think to be completely, you're still renting out your time, if you like, uh, for a wage, when, even when you're freelancing. I think the only way to be completely flexible is to be really an entrepreneur and really set up your own company and your own way of working. But even then, you've probably got you've got flexibility, but you've got less time because there's so much more. You know, I, I don't know. I think there's there's advantages and disadvantages of all three different ways of working. I think people just have to find the right one that works for them, and they, maybe they've got to try all three. You know, a bit of setting up their own company, being an employee, and freelancing to to find out what they want. But yeah, I think you know, freelancing. It's certainly I can't say it's not flexible. It is because you know I can turn away projects if I don't have time, or if I want to take time off. You know, I can block out weeks when I want, and and choose the types of projects I would like to take on. Whereas when you're an employee, you've got to do the projects that come in, right, and that that, that right. are on the books to complete. So um, in that respect, it's a, it is a little bit more flexible. 
Yeah, it's not because, yeah, I also consider to go as a freelancer, but I must take some steps because I can't go right away. Oh, okay. In what way? Like, set because up the tax and all that kind of thing. In quality management, kind of external audit, something like this. And MedTech in Germany, it's really good. Worldwide, in general, only big players there. And in Germany, it's different. There are many middle and small companies. This market, yeah, much more welcoming for newcomers, especially mm -hmm. when you're getting some relevant experience and training. A couple of years, yeah, probably two years of experience at some company. And you can pretty much go on because through this employment, you're getting exposed to everything what happened there, basically different fairs, conferences, you know the market, you know everything. Yeah. You have network and pretty much you can go. Yeah, I I mean that's absolutely the same from my perspective because I you know I, I came out of academia, I worked in medical communications for the pharma sector. I took two jobs, you know, as an employee before I've started freelancing. I don't think a year, a year and a half ago, I would have had the network or the expertise to be able to freelance. Yeah. I think you do need to come out and get yourself some experience. And, and I think the main thing is building up a network of people that would call upon you, you know, and trust your work to, to help them with projects. So I think, um, I think that's the same anywhere. Although I have seen people who have come out of academia and become freelance straight away in different areas. And, I, and I'm like, wow, you know, I don't I don't know how that, that's working out for people, but personally, I felt that I needed a network to build a network yeah. and understand the industry and understand how things work. Because, you know, medical communications, you know, I, I still like wrote papers, you know, reports and things for the pharma industry. And it was still, you know, my area of knowledge expertise, but still the way things are done is completely different. And I wouldn't have known that coming out of academia, you know, what the expectations were, the industry standards is something I really had to learn. The, the freelance thing is, is giving me different types of projects, which is good. It's better if you try and get a little bit of experience first and build up a network of people that you can call upon for when, you know, when you actually start up your business. Yeah, that, that's true because Without networking, just by yourself, it's shooting yourself in the foot, in the head, pretty much. Yeah, because where do you find where do you find the clients? You would no. have to go on these. I mean, there are freelancing sites now, right, where you can go on and you know pitch yourself as a writer. But I, you know, I haven't done that because I, I haven't felt that I've needed to yet. I mean, I might need to do something like that. I don't know. It depends if if work keeps coming to me. I don't know how well those sites kind of work for people. And perhaps they do. You know, perhaps people are able to attract work, freelance work there. This was my conversation with Wiki. And Wiki runs also blog, which you can find on biomedbetters.com. Amazing blog with tons of useful information for STEM people on how to navigate the world of work and build a successful career. If you consider how to advance in increasingly competitive job market, this blog is meant for you. Check it out and subscribe. See you next time.